Thank you so much. It's a, a real blessing to be with you. And uh, just kind of lose yourself in the worship. It's uh, a great joy to be in a, amongst a worshipping people. And uh, it's a great blessing to have a, a leadership in a church that's led you to become a worshipping people. And uh, certainly when I became a Christian, uh, you know, you went to hear the preacher, really. And worship was just the preliminaries, just get this stuff done, then we can hear. And it's great to be in a place where that's not the case at all. We're here for the Lord. We've been telling him he's everything to us. He's the center. And uh, it's just wonderful to know that's not just words. Uh, it's easy to feel that in the meeting. This is what we're saying. This is who we... You can't understand us without knowing that. That Jesus is central. That he's made himself real to us. So it's a blessing to be here. Great to see you all again. Great to be back and uh, to feel your progress, the blessing of God that's on you. Uh, yeah, John mentioned there are some books there. I've had the privilege lately of speaking at a number of conferences where I've been asked, uh, you know, tell us about New Frontiers, your history. I was in Poland uh, three weeks ago now, I think, speaking at the European Leaders Forum. Uh, Forty different nationalities present and uh, church planting people and uh, I was asked to speak about our history somewhat. So that was a privilege really to do that and a lot of interest. So maybe some of you don't know our history so the book No Well-Worn Paths is out there uh, and it just helps you to see how things started Um, uh, because I was introduced by a German guy actually the first time I spoke and he said this this guy has led a movement of... uh, now 1,500 churches in 70 nations. And I thought, wow, that's, that sounds pretty good. You know? and, and then in question and answer times, they said, well, you know, it's all right to have done that out of strength. You know, you were able to do it from... I said, to be honest, we started with little churches of like 20 in a house there and 15 in a house there. And I went to John, uh, Don Smith's ch- uh, church in Hastings, which was in a basement flat with 14 people. And uh, he said, after Terry came, we became 11 people. <laughs> and, uh, so I remember us starting in little groups, little groups all over. And uh, so in the mercy of God, you know, I had the privilege of telling a story which might take half an hour to tell, but look, 40 years to happen. And so I just recommend No Well-Worn Paths to just get an awareness of uh, our history. That's one of the books that's on the table. And then Wendy's with me this morning and uh, she is a writer, I, I'd have a go, but she's got some skill. And uh, His Strong Hand is the latest book she's written, which I'd recommend to you. You might say, I'm not really much of a reader. Well, to be honest, this is ideal for people who feel that, because every chapter is only like two or three pages. And she was asked by the publishers, can you write something, it could be on a coffee table, or just at your bedside, just read a little and meet with Jesus in a little encounter. And they're nearly all things that have happened in our life, and she's met with Jesus there. So they're they're really, uh, I think, tremendous little stories that bring Jesus right through. So titles like uh, Grace is Amazing, A Daughter's Decision, In Praise of Older Women, Sisters, Wedding Anniversaries, Notes on Worship, Babies, Daffodils and Other Smells, Rugby for grandmas. That's a really good one. Fun. So I just recommend it. It's, it'll bless you, I promise, and uh, make you chuckle. And some of them may make you shed a tear or two. They really bring Jesus right into life. So I recommend that. And there are other titles 
you might like to take advantage of. It's a blessing to come into a church that's taking the Bible seriously and just to slot into your program, working through Ephesians. Um, There's such a great thing for us to submit our thinking to what the Bible says about the church. And probably Ephesians is the most wonderful New Testament book about what you've called the glorious church. And so I'm going to just pick up where you finished off last week. And uh, I'll read just verse 10, but I've been asked to preach from 11 through 19, which I'll do, but just to kind of give the uh, connection with last week. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Uh, One translation calls it his work of art. Have you thought of yourself as a work of art? Uh, The Greek word is poema, perhaps this was touched on, from which we get a poem. God's working on you. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. We need to pray because there's an awful lot of stuff in those verses. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you for giving us an appetite to seek God. Thank you for showing us the emptiness of every other idol. And the Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. We honor you. We invite you, please, to be our teacher. Come, Holy Spirit. Rest upon us. Lead us into truth. Feed us, nourish us, encourage us through your word, Father. Give us insight, help us to walk in the good of it. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul, in this magnificent chapter, is telling people what God has done for us in Christ. And the section that we have starts with this invitation to remind people what they used to be so that he can, in contrast, show them what they've now become. And especially he's concerned to speak to the Gentiles, 
who were far off and to let them understand they are not second-class citizens. They haven't kind of been tacked on the end. It's not like here's a, an elite group and then, yeah, you outsiders have been let in. He's going to say something far more profound than that and it's great for us to know that we're not just let in the back door but we're right in the heart of what God wants to do with this one new man that he's brought through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and through his death. Okay, so we just need to work through phrase by phrase. It's rich uh, with so many phrases, I hope that will shed light on our experience. So verse 11, he says, Remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in flesh by human hands. He said, remember, you were the uncircumcision. Now that's how Jewish people would have referred to Gentiles. People were not part of the, uh, of the chosen special people. And you might remember when uh, David uh, confronted Goliath, Goliath strutting around as a great giant, a powerful guy, a warrior, who, who, who caused the whole of the Israelite army to tremble in fear. And David came up and said, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Well, he's a giant. He's uncircumcised. What do you mean? He meant God's not with him. God's not with him. Because the circumcision was the mark given to Abraham at the beginning, this unique nation, unique in all the world, only one nation like it, the presence of God with them, all kinds of promises over them, that God was going to use them, a Messiah was coming, many, many promises wrapped up in this special, special people. And David understood that. So this giant, he may be impressive, but he's uncircumcised, God's not with him. So just with a stone, he takes him out. Some of them didn't realize, but David saw it. Ah, God's not with him. God's not with him. And so the uncircumcised, hey, we're like Goliath. God's not with us. That's what it's saying. You, you, you're uncircumcised. God's not with you. Hey, you may look impressive. You may be this, you may be that. God's not with you. And that's where he said, remember, that's where you came from. That's your background, that's your history. Paul is writing to a church at Ephesus that's now rejoicing in God's presence. And he's writing, it says here, especially to the Gentiles there, and saying, that, remember, that's where you come from. You, 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 weren't, you didn't have uh, the circumcision mark, you didn't have that uh, testimony, God's with you. And it's interesting, he says, like, you're called that by the so-called circumcision. So he's beginning to kind of undermine some of the attitude, the so-called circumcision. And then it says, made in the flesh by hands. What's that all about? It's like saying, well, actually, it's become very external. So back in David's day, it was a, a, a thing of real faith for him. We're the people of God. Goliath's nothing. And, and for him, it really meant something. By the time Jesus came on the scene, so much has become external. So much has become kind of elitist. We are God's people. There's no faith around. They're not doing any exploits of faith. They're not like David. They're just saying, no, we're the people of God. We're the people of God. We've got God's mark on us. And so Paul begins to kind of sow a note of doubt about that, the so-called circumcision made by hands. It's like, so what? Some of the, the glory of it is kind of fading in Paul's thinking. And so, you know, they, they boasted in who they were. So when John the Baptist came along and said, repent to the Jewish people, repent. They said, hey, what do you mean repent? We're children of Abraham. And John the Baptist said, God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. 
You're glorying in your externals. You're, you're glorying in these titles, these names, but it's not authentic. It's not in you. And Paul says it more profoundly, really, in Romans 2, when he says, he is not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is of outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who's one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise isn't from men, but from God. Now you'll find hints of that back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah says something similar. But here we find Paul is saying, look, this externalism is really robbing you of reality. You're just saying, well, hey, we belong to God already. We belong to God already. I used to be a door-to-door evangelist, probably the worst on the planet, but I used to do it. And it used to, it used to make me angry when I knocked doors and someone would say to me, oh, no, I'm not interested, I'm a Catholic. It's like, what? Well, I'm a Catholic, there's nothing you can say to me. It's like, you know, it's all... I thought, well, what about your soul? Oh, I'm a Catholic. And here these people are saying, Paul John's saying, God's going to come. Oh, we're already children of Abraham, thank you. You've, you. you've just got an external. You've not really understood what it's about. And circumcision, he says, is meant to be of the heart. It's meant to be something that has cut you off from other things and given you a devotion to God. And it's just become external. So he begins to introduce, okay, you were outside, you were like Goliath, and he says, this, at this time you were separate from Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means Christ, the Messiah, was the promise over Israel. that the, uh, There was going to come a great deliverer. A wonderful deliverer. This was a nation that suffered a great deal, and yet it had a kind of strange destiny about it. These people have got destiny to bless all the families of the earth. When God came to Abraham and said, in you, he said, I will bless you. Imagine, Abraham is one man. God says it to him. I will bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, through your seed. And Paul points out in Galatians, that actually is one seed, one person who's coming. Through you, I will bless all the families. God did a strange thing. He didn't pour out blessing in Australia and Brazil and China. This one family, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. You are the blessing of God. Imagine Abraham. Imagine waking up. Imagine being Sarah, ladies. You know, wake up and Abraham says, good morning, Sarah. Here I am. God's blessing to the world. (laughs) See, he was. He was God's blessing. And it was was in this people, God, God... pronounced a blessing, but the blessing is through the Christ, ultimately. This coming Messiah, this one who will change everything. And so it's referred to again and again in the Old Testament, one we remember at Christmas. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulder. So this nation, this poor little nation that gets beaten up by Romans and Greeks and all sorts of people beat up this little nation, but they've got this promise in their heart. There's going to come somebody. The Christ is going to become the Christ. So when John the Baptist came on the scene, and there was the greatest revival that they'd had for generations, all the people went out to be baptized by John. And they said, are you the one? He said, no, no, I'm not the one. I'm I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He's just about to come. So Israel had this kind of history that a great deliverer is coming. Someone who's going to change everything. It's a kind of longing in people's hearts. If only someone would come who could change everything. And they had the promise it's going to happen. And, but we, we Gentiles, you and me, we're strangers to all that. 
says, you, you were the uncircumcision. He said, you were separate from Christ. That, that promise wasn't to us. It was only to the Jewish nation. You were separate from Christ. You uh, had, and it says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, God made covenant. He covenanted with Abraham. I will bless you. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. He made promises to David. He said to David, he said, a son of yours will sit on the throne. And and he's going to have a glorious kingdom, an amazing kingdom. So this nation had promises over it. Isaiah had promised them. Jeremiah had promised them. God's going to do stuff, but we don't have any of that. You know, some of us from English stock, you know, we were painting ourselves with woad and living in caves somewhere. We didn't know. This nation knew. God had made them promises. And we were strangers to that. So other nations, yeah, we're strangers to the promises. That's why you say you didn't know the covenant. You had no hope without God in the world. A man called Hendrickson says, we were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That's where we were. That's, he said, just remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. And then you get this wonderful, wonderful phrase. Just two words, but now. But now. Earlier in the, ver- earlier in the chapter, you got that wonderful verse four, but God. Now for us, but now. But now. Have you had a but now in your life? When I was 16, I'm just muddling through life. My sister came home. She'd left. I lived in Brighton. She'd gone to London. She came home. She said, can I speak to you? I came home late one Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. I've become a Christian. I said, what do you mean you've become a Christian? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a Christian nation. We're going to become a Christian. She said, I've been born again. I said, I was born again? I've never heard such nonsense. I'd... See, she, she had a but now. This is what she used to be. But now. She's, but now I'm a Christian. I thought, what are you talking about? Something had happened. But now, I didn't know any of this stuff, but now. And that evening I argued with her and talked with her. And then she said, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And I said casually, he's supposed to have been raised on the third day, isn't he? And she said, that means he's alive. And when she said it, I was, I was born again. I suddenly, I suddenly knew he's alive. We're born again through the resurrection from the dead, it says. I suddenly knew. He's alive. I knew it. I suddenly knew it. Because this isn't a stranger knocking my door. It's my sister. There's something. What's happened to you? And that night, I got a but now in my life. I was nowhere. But now, now, from now on, all this works for me. Is that true for you yet? Maybe your friends brought you along here. Maybe you're looking into Christianity. You have to have a but now. You don't, you don't, you're not a Christian because you were born in England. It's more and more obvious. It has to be a but, but now, now, this is, all this stuff is now true for me. So as we press on with the rest of this, we've seen what we used to be, hopeless, godless, but now. It's going to take us from there, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near. Now, by the blood of Christ. Now, the whole idea of being far off and near was language you'll find back in Isaiah, which talks about the Gentiles were far off and the Israelites were near. And what you could do, 
is you could become what's called a God-fearer or a proselyte. In other words, there were people, God-fearers, they tend to be called in the Bible, who weren't actually Jews but were impressed by Judaism. They were not impressed by all these multiplied gods always fighting one another, the Greek gods. They thought, this is weird stuff. There's something about this Jewish religion. They've got one God and it's got a history. And and these far-off people could be made near. They could go through certain procedures. They could actually go through washings. They could then be, they could be circumcised. They could start keeping the Sabbath and keeping Jewish rules. They could be incorporated into Judaism. It could happen. It happened. People came into Judaism. They, 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 had, they, they had been far off. They were brought near. But here... Paul says, no, 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 you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. So we're not talking about a process. We're not talking about becoming a Jew through embracing all of Judaism. Through the blood of Christ, through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we who are no hopers have been brought right in by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He has done it, and he's broken down the dividing wall. So this part of the passage is about the difference between Jew and Gentile. That's what this part, we'll move on as we go through the passage, but this early part is about the, the, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were in, accepted, the Gentiles are foreigners, dogs as they called them. You know, Gentile dogs, dismissed, outside. And it says here he's broken down the dividing wall. There was a strong dividing wall. In fact, it's interesting, an archaeologist in 1871 discovered this in the temple area, a sign which had been in the temple where it says this, no man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around this temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. You're an outsider, you don't step in here. You Gentile dog, you stay outside. You may remember in the story, uh, in Acts later on, Paul goes into the temple area and they think he's taken Gentiles in. And there's a hoo-ha, big, hey, he's brought Gentiles into the temple. So it's in the Bible, you see that story. But here, this, this actual site, archaeologists searching, and think, whoa, there it is. This hatred, this, you're not in here. And here it says, he's broken down the wall. The fence has gone. The external, the, the, the thing that kept us out is gone. And it says this, that he has abolished in his flesh this dividing wall, which was, it says, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he may make of the two one new man. We just need to look at it quite carefully. As I say, it's a very kind of dense passage of Scripture. He broke... Was the dividing thing was these laws. What do we mean? We mean this. Israel was unique. It had the Ten Commandments. It had the law, the Torah. The law of God had been given to them. And they were proud of it. We are, we are the people of the law. We have the law of God. And, 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 and these uninstructed people, they're dismissed. Even when the disciples begin to break through, they're these uninstructed people. 
They don't mean they're stupid. They mean they don't. They haven't been with the rabbis. They don't know the full involvement of the law. And so they're saying, hey, these guys are out. It was the, it was the giving of the law that made Israel feel distinct, unique. We've got this holy law. Came God spoke to us. And it became the dividing wall. So for, in the past, for anyone to become a proselyte, to become a God-fearer, had to learn all this and take it on board and, and change his lifestyle completely so he looked like a Jew. Now, the gospel's broken out and it's something very different. Now it's something very different. Now, the dividing law has been taken down. How? Through his flesh. Through his flesh. What does that mean? It means what happened on the cross. When he offered himself, then he broke that down. Let me just take you quickly to Romans 7, where we read what happened. In Romans 7, um, we find that Paul gives one of his most kind of uh, succinct teachings on our relationship with the law, when he says this, Therefore, my brothers, you, writing to all of us, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Because Paul says this elsewhere, we're not under law. We're under grace. Now Jesus said the law will never pass away. So how does that work? If Jesus said the law will never pass away, and Paul says you're not under law, is Paul arguing with Jesus? No, Romans 7 makes it clear. It says we used to be under the law, and, and it's almost like we're married to the law. Romans 7 talks about this relationship with the law. It's like an overbearing husband showing us how guilty we are, showing us, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do this. He's, he's got this power over us, and we're trying to keep the law, but we find we can't. And you can't argue and say, I don't agree, because it's good and holy and very appropriate, but we can't keep it all. And, and it says in Romans 7, he's like a husband. He's like scaring the life out of us. We're all married to this overbearing husband who's always right, always showing us where we're not, and never lifts a finger to help us. And we're married. I wish we could get rid of him. But Jesus says he's never going to die. So I'm stuck with this husband who's never going to die. He's perfect. He's wonderful. Shows me I'm not. He never helps me. He's never going to die. So, so Paul suddenly says, but you, you, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means this, Jesus had two relationships with the law. This is the first one, innocent. Innocent, that's the word the Bible uses, he was innocent. The law never found him out. He stood up and said, which of you finds fault with me? That's a pretty challenging thing to do. John and I wouldn't dare do that up here. <laughs> Jesus said that to the crowd. Who can, who can find fault with me? No one offered. He says, Satan's coming, he's got nothing on me. So Jesus was innocent. But when it came to the cross, it says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became sin. He was made to be sin. So at the cross, God put all of our guilt upon him, and then he was judged. And the law cursed him. The law is vindicated. The law lives on. Jesus dies. The law is upheld. The lamb dies, takes away our guilt, and we were in him. 
we were in him. You were made to die. You were made to die to the law. The law lives on, but those of us who are in Christ, our relationship's over. Because Jesus died to the law. So Paul could say, you're not under law anymore. You're under grace. The law lives on, but Paul says to Timothy, the law is good, providing you use it lawfully. It's not for the righteous, but for sinners. So the law keeps on thundering out, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But once you're in Christ, it's done its work. Curse Jesus, and we were in Jesus, and we died to the law. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So he broke down this dividing wall through his flesh. He dealt with it. He abolished it. What a great word that is. He abolished it. It says in Hebrews, it's obsolete. For the believer, the law is obsolete. See, I did not come to church this morning on my penny farthing. (laughs) It's obsolete. It doesn't work anymore. It's not relevant. That's what the Bible says. It's obsolete. It says it made nothing holy. It made nothing holy. It says in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could make us righteous, then righteousness would have come by the law. If a law be given that could actually change us, could impart life. If there was a law that could impart life. See, if the law... See, some people say this, dear friends. We know, we know only Jesus can save. Yes, of course. Then you must go back to the law to get sanctified. The Bible nowhere says that. Nowhere. It says you're discharged from the law. You've died to it. It's finished. It's finished. Why? Because the law makes nothing holy, it says in Hebrews. All it does is show you you're a sinner. And it says, if a law had begun that could impart life. See, if the law can impart life, let's get in all these schools, quickly. Let's run out to the schools tomorrow morning and let's shout, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. Just tell them the law. That'll change everybody. No, it doesn't. Because it doesn't impart any life. He's like our husband, it says, but he's an impotent husband. He doesn't impart any life. And so Romans 7 says, we've died to the law that we might be joined to him who's raised from the dead. That we might bear fruit. Hallelujah. We found a better husband. A life-imparting husband who says, my peace, I give you. My love, I pour it out in your heart. My joy, I give it to you. The old law said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Dwell in me. I dwell in you. I'll change you from the inside. I'll make you bear fruit. So Paul is saying here, now that, that division has gone. He's abolished the law in his flesh. So He's dealt with that. He's dealt with that. So we don't have to, as Christians, say, oh, I've got to become as Jewish as I possibly can. I've got to keep the law. I've got to keep these rules. That's not the way through. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this. The division was so great, God didn't make a patch-up job. He didn't try and stick Gentile on Jew. He didn't say, well, the, you know, the Jewish Christians are the real ones, and then there's the stuff. No, he says, no. He what? He created one new man. Creation. That's a big word. Create from nothing. God can make, he can create from nothing. Amazing, isn't it? The heavens and the earth. 
He created it from nothing. Creation. It's God's skill he can create. He's the creator God. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, we're impressed by the magician who can take a rabbit out of a hat. He said, God created everything without the aid of a rabbit or a hat. (laughs) He made from nothing. He created. And that's the word that's in this text. He created a new man, a new people. He created something new, a new humanity we've got up here. And he created that in the world today, there's a new humanity, a new people. They've been born again. They've had a second birth. They've been created again. And the night I said yes and knelt down as a teenager, I became part of that new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, new creation, new creation, new creation. So he created one new man. Jew and Gentile. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor free. It's, the, it's, it's a new creation. It's an incredible thing. The church is an amazing, amazing, it's a glorious church. A glorious church. We should have a very high view of the church. I remember years ago, I was speaking to an Anglican who was in kind of renewal, and, and we went to house churches, and he thought, you poor people, you know, you're funny little house churches. And, you know, we've got all this history. And, uh, you know, it's fine, having a nice chat to him. And, and uh, we're having an evening, Wendy and I are having a meal with him and his wife. And he was quite a leading, his name is Michael Harper, and he was quite a leading renewal figure in this country. And during the evening, he suddenly stopped. He said to me, oh, you have a high view of the church. I said, yeah, I sure do. So he thought, well, you, you mean house churches? Anglican church with all its history. No, I said, no, we have a very high view of the church. And it was like, oh. See, because we were meeting in homes, it didn't mean we didn't have a high view of the church. We have a very high view of the church. We want the church to be all it is from the Bible, not hindered by other stuff. And you see, this whole thing, if you become a Christian, you have to pick up all this Jewish stuff. And now that could, that could, be, that could hold back world mission. See, Paul insisting on the freedom of the church, opened the door to go to other cultures. It meant he could go to Greece, he could go to Athens, he could go nation after nation. He's preaching Christ. He's not saying, oh no, if you become, you need to be circumcised, you must keep the Sabbath. He's not saying any of that. And that sort of attitude, we can have that in our missionary perspectives. Has been true. You go to Africa and and you find people dressed up in robes. What are you doing? We've, we've taken Englishness with us. We've taken the Church of England into, you know, Africa. So, if you want to, so we take a whole package with us, and Paul doesn't do that. He says, no, the relevance of Christ will have its outworking in all kinds of different cultures, even different styles of worship that will reflect much more African worship. I've been to, I love Mexican worship. I love going to these different churches. They don't have to impose a common... So it has to be all English. No, it doesn't. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
I love being in African worship. I was in Zimbabwe at Easter. Wendy and I were down there for mega vision. And the worship's colossal. Absolutely stunning. And it was so funny. One of the speakers, a beautiful black guy from Zimbabwe, and he said, he said, you English people, he said, you sing about in your songs. He said, it's like a composition all the way down there. Because they sing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said, you sing a composition. And his wife stood up and said, yeah, they sing about hills and valleys. We want to think about Jesus. It was quite an eye-opener to me. Yeah, the different ways of worship, the celebrating. We're not trying to impose Englishness in order to be an authentic Christian. No. And Paul said, I'm not imposing Jewishness. Because that's all finished anyway. I'm taking Christ. And the culture, yeah, will reflect something of your culture with the truth of Jesus on it. So we're going to Greek cities, have to break idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. But the gospel can be reflected in the culture that's there. The Mexi- I love Mexican worship. There's, a, there's something about it. It's a delight. And so, yeah, we don't have to impose culture. Jesus, Paul didn't do that. So it says, the one new man. Hallelujah. <coughs> one new man. Of the two he made, it's an amazing creation. The church of God is one body. He's got one body out, throughout the world. And it's one of the privileges I've had to have travel around and meet different cultures loving Jesus. And you can just feel at home because Jesus is at the center like he has been in our worship here this morning. Then he said, you reconciled Jew and Gentile to God. He reconciled, first of all, Jew and Gentile to one to the other, getting rid of the dividing wall. Now they're one new man. And then it goes on to say, then he reconciled Jew and Gentile to God, because both needed to be reconciled. It's not like the Jews were already right with God, and we just needed to get the Gentiles in. Both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God. We we mustn't think, oh, the Jews, they were already okay. Because Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus. He's He's a teacher. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus cuts right across. He says, unless you get born again, he says to the Jewish guy, you won't even see the kingdom. You Jewish people need to get born again. It's not because we don't say, even today, sometimes get, people get confused about Israel and so on. It's like, well, they're, all, they're already the people of God. Well, Jesus said to one of their leaders, if you don't get born again, you won't even get a look in. And that is consistent from John the Baptist right through. They needed a new birth. Just like the Gentile needs a new birth. Both need to be reconciled to God. And if they weren't born again, they weren't, they weren't actually God's people. They weren't actually. They need, it's Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. They had to come to Jesus. If they hadn't come to Jesus, they're, no, they're not in right relationship. And so it says many Jews became obedient to the faith. It says in Acts. Many of the priests did. They got saved. They got born again. They needed to be born again. And then we get to this verse 18. One of the great Trinitarian verses of the Bible. Some people say the word Trinity is not in the Bible, which is perfectly true. But here you get these occasional verses that... So we have in verse 18, through him, that is Jesus, through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There we have the Trinity in one verse. We have our access... So for 
for those outside, Jews and Gentiles, we need to get access to the Father. This is what this is about. It's great to preach on this on Father's Day. The one from whom all fatherhood derives its name. What has he been eternally? Father. See, sometimes people say, what, what was God eternally? Well, he's the creator. No, that's something he did. Eternally, he's been father. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From, from him, all fatherhood derives his name. He's the, he's the ultimate father. And, and there's something in our guts that wants to get to father. That's what we've been singing about this morning. We want to get to father. And here it's saying, look, we have a way through. We have access it's great to get access. I see, I can't get in. It reminds me, Wendy and I once were in Washington, D.C., and I preached in the morning, and someone said to me in the morning meeting in, in C.J. Mahaney's church, going back years, and he said, um, would you like to go to the White House this afternoon? I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, go in. I'll go into the White House. Yeah, not half. So they said, yeah, okay, you turn up there, Pennsylvania Avenue, and John will let, get you in. Okay, I didn't know who John was, but right. So we turn up, we go to Pennsylvania Avenue, we turn up, we're standing there, and we're looking up at the White House, and there's the barrier, and there's one of the biggest policemen I've ever seen. I mean, just great, huge policeman. And we're walking towards the gate, he's got his big gun on here, and it's like, uh, yes, uh, where are you going? Ah, uh, well, um, would you like to go in, you know, go in there? <laughs> yeah, going in there, yeah. And uh, what's going to get you in here? Um, well, there's a guy we know. Oh, yeah. Who's he? Um, I think his name's John. I mean, it's like... <laughs> I'm going into the White House, and I think his name's John. Uh, okay. You know, you think, oh, God, am I disqualified? We're never going to get in here. And then a taxi pulls up. This guy jumps out. Terry, Wendy. He recognised us, been on the platform. Uh, and he says, oh, I'm John. Oh, hi. And he goes up to the guy, produces his card. Guy goes into a little hut, checks it on the video, I don't know what, opens the door, in you go, in you go. And they had two tours, there's the ordinary tour and the VIP tour, and we had better than the VIP tour. <laughs> Honestly, it was phenomenal. I stood in the oval, uh, I stood in the cabinet room, and I stood at the frame, door frame of the oval office. I mean, I stood there, you know, you may have seen West Wing folks, but I stood there <laughs> and, and looked in, and it was when Reagan was president. And, you know, I was asking the guy, what is that? What is that? And uh, I, remember, I don't remember um, Truman's great statement, the buck stops here. Well, Reagan was a bit of a cowboy, and he had this thing on, on his desk. I said, what is that? What is it? And he said, the thing underneath, he says, the buckaroo stops here. <laughs> and he just thought, oh, this is so privileged. Because I had someone who could get me in. We had access. We have access. That's what it says here, we have access We've got our access to God. Who are you? Oh, I've got a I know someone. <laughs> I know someone who can get me in. Through Jesus, we come to the Father. By one Spirit. Through Christ, not through the law. Not through Jewish observance. Won't get me in. Through Jesus, through his blood, we have access to God. By one Spirit. To the Father. You see, the Holy Spirit, Gordon Fee says this, very helpful. It is the common experience of the one Spirit, by Jew and Gentile alike, that attests that God has created something new 
in the body of Christ. The death of Christ made it possible. Their common experience of the Spirit made it a reality. By one Spirit we had access. So when, when uh, Peter was told to go to Cornelius' house, there you get it kind of dramatized. So his, God comes to Simon Peter, Jewish background, and the sheep comes down from heaven. You remember the story? God says to him, arise, kill, and eat. He says, oh, I don't touch that sort of food. You know, a Jewish background. I've never eaten that. I don't eat that. That's all our rules. We don't eat that. And then God says, look, what I call clean, don't call unclean. Mm, it's just new day. Then he gets, well, what's that about? Vision? I wonder what that was about. Knock on the door. There's some, there's some Romans outside. Roman pigs. <laughs> See, that's what you've got to understand. These pigs, these Romans. That's Peter's background. They're soldiers. These are the people who crush Israel. That's our enemy. They're at the door. Come with us. We've seen a vision. You've seen a vision? We saw a vision. You, pigs, saw a vision. And, and, and Peter realizes, arise, go to this un, unexpected world. So he goes to Cornelius' house, and the door's open, and he's going to step into a, a Gentile house. It's like, ugh. I mean, honestly, that's how it would have been for him. You've got to, that's how, you don't go into their home. They're Gentile pigs. That's where Jesus got into trouble, even mixing with, with Jew, Jewish sinners. You know, eats with sinners. There were Pharisees, you wouldn't eat with those sort of people. You certainly wouldn't go in a Gentile home. And Peter's there. And they said, we've seen an angel. He spoke to us. Send for Peter. Incidentally, notice this. Some people make big things about angels, angels, angels. What happens? The angel says, go and send for a man who will tell you what the Bible says. All right? Let's get angels in the right perspective. I've seen an angel. What did he tell you to do? Nothing much. I saw an angel. He said, send for Peter... He will, tell, he will speak words to you by which you'll be saved. See, so praise God for angels, but we need the word. So Peter's there, and he starts preaching Christ. What happens? Remember what happens? He's preaching to these Gentiles. There's Cornelius, he's got a house full of people. And the Spirit fell upon them. And they all start speaking in tongues. And Peter says, what's going on here? You've got pigs speaking in tongues. <laughs> That's what's happening. What is going on? And it's, wow, the Holy Spirit's been given to them like he was given to us. He commands them to be baptized. Because why? Well, it's obvious God is on these Gentiles. So when he goes, it's interesting, very important chapter, Acts 10. It's very important, you can tell that, because it's repeated in Acts 11. So when Luke is writing the book of Acts, he wants you to get a hold of this, because he tells it twice. Once when it happened, second when he's, when he's on the carpet before the apostles, what are you doing with Gentiles? Acts 11, the other apostles are saying, Peter, what are you up to? They're Gentiles, what are you doing? He said, while I was yet speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They said, who was I that I could withstand God? And they say, wow, God is, re- God is granting repentance to the Gentiles. What does he mean? So he said, by one spirit, we have access to God. And so I think what thesis is so helpful. The death of Christ made it possible. 
the common experience of the Spirit made it a reality. It's possible for Gentiles to be saved. Wow! There's the Spirit. It's happening. The same Spirit that we have. Gentiles are speaking in tongues. So it's the Spirit. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has done something profound. He's made it clear we are one body. I'm one body with that Gentile. I'm one body with him. The blood of Christ made it possible. The manifestation of the Spirit makes it evident. That's why we celebrate this morning. Come, we worship. We're worshipping in the Spirit. We're saying, brother, you may come from this nation, that nation, that denominational background, that history. It's irrelevant. We're in Christ. We're in one Spirit. That's what this passage is saying. One new man, the Holy Spirit, making it clear and bringing us to the Father. The Father. We must finish. It says, we have become... That's what I'm supposed to finish. You're no longer strangers. That word could be translated refugees. All right? You think of our modern world. People with the homeless, they're without a nation. You see these terrible think documentaries and news programs. These poor people, they're homeless, they, they don't belong anywhere anymore. That's the word, refugee. You are no longer refugees. Honestly, that's how it could be translated. You're no longer strangers, aliens, you're fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. And not only citizens, God's household. Your family members. It's wonderful to have common citizenship. It's wonderful to say, I've got my citizenship. People go through that challenge. Will they let me in? I've got my citizenship. People I know have gone to the US. I've got my citizenship. I can stay. We're not just citizens, we're family. What makes us family? One Father. One Father. The Holy Spirit brings us to one Father. It's not just in the Bible, it comes from our heart. Abba, Father. I know the day I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I started speaking in tongues, and I felt this, Father. I'd been a Christian for six years. Oh, Father. Abba, Abba, Father. The nearness of God. The Spirit makes that possible. The Spirit does it. And so we're a new people on planet Earth. The church of the living God. This unique people that God is extending this household all over the world. Different nations, different cultures. He's extending it. He's extending it. He's extending it. His kingdom breaking through all over the place. The kingdom of God coming powerfully coming. Our friends in Turkey have seen several saved lately. Everyone that's been saved in the churches we're involved in in Turkey, everyone, they tell me, they had a dream before they met the church. Everyone. I had a dream. I saw this. and I, Can you tell me about this? I saw this figure. I saw this. What's this about? I had very, last, last week I had, a guy said we had a, I had a dream and I saw this, this figure and, it's, it's, and it's, I can hear the words holy, holy, holy. And I see this, this kind of a, a long gown. And, a, and, a, and, a, and he said, I heard it say, who will go for us? And he said, in my dream, I said, I will. I will. He's captivated by it. Who will go? I will. He said, and he came to the, he said, what is this all about? I had this dream. What is it? He took him to Isaiah 6. There you go. See, God's, God's gathering a people. God, there are people, and we're part of it. Amen? Amen. We're part of it. 
We're not second-class citizens. We're not being tacked on. We're new creation. In Christ, free from rules, all that partition's gone. We'd be one people in the grace of God. Amen. Shall we, shall we worship? Let's stand to pray. Maybe the band could come up and we'll sing something marvelous.